Well, good morning again. Really is uh, so good to be back. I was, we were on vacation last week. We weren't here uh, on Sunday and uh, it's amazing. Maybe it's not amazing, but it's amazing to me how much I miss being here. Uh, you know, we, we went to church, we went to another church. We were with God's people, but we weren't with you guys. And um, it's so good to be back and to see you all again. Uh, our sermon text for this morning is Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 40. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 16, verses 6 through 40, that'll be our sermon text. Uh, let's pray together before we read God's Word. Our Father, we... We, we come to you again. We come to you because we need you. We come to you because we need to hear from you. We need your word. We need your word planted deep in our hearts, bearing its fruit by the power of your spirit. And so we pray that you would come, that you would come and be with us right now, uh, that you would uh, be present, that you would work in us, that you would take your word, that you would plant it deep within us, that you would enable it by your spirit to bear fruit. Uh, in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our minds, uh, and, and in our actions, Father, that your word by your spirit would have its way with us and that we would be changed as we see you, uh, as we see your glory in the scriptures, as we get a glimpse of Jesus, our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. 
But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Discouragement is easy. Sometimes it's hard to obey, uh, to do what we know is right rather than what we would like to think is best. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to love, uh, especially those who are closest to us, right? It's hard to love our loved ones. Sometimes it's hard to find joy. Uh, It's easy to be overwhelmed by the trials and the sadnesses of life, the daily disasters and disappointments that we face. It's easy to fear to live scared and anxious, worried and troubled for what will come next. Sometimes it's hard to rest. We get so busy, there's so much to do, the the weight of the world is on our shoulders. If we don't do it, who will after all? Sometimes it's hard to be mission-minded. We're we're so busy, we we have our own lives. What, What Jesus is doing or might be calling us to do just doesn't even come into play. And so we get discouraged. Uh, We get discouraged because all those things that we know we should be doing are so hard. 
obedience and love and fearlessness and joy and mission-mindedness and rest. Which of those is hardest for you? That in and of itself is a hard question for me because I struggle and stumble with each of them every day. And you know why I struggle and I stumble. I, I struggle uh, and stumble, really, it's the same reason that each of you struggles and stumbles. And it's because I buy into Satan's lies. Uh, And living a lie isn't easy. It doesn't work. And as I've thought about Scripture and the Christian life, I realize that there are certain uh, fundamental lies, lies that Satan has been telling us from the beginning. And even when we don't articulate them, we believe them. We often feel that they are true. And my guess is that everyone in this room is believing one or more of those lies right now. And I I tend to bring them up often uh, because they're so deep-rooted in our hearts and minds and because Scripture is constantly speaking against them. And so let me suggest just three of Satan's kind of foundational lies that lie underneath so much of our sin and misery um, that our text this morning is going to speak against. Uh, Line number one is that uh, God doesn't love me. That's the biggest lie that we believe so often as Christians. It it may be that you think you are unlovable. Uh, It may be that you have a weighty sense of your own sin. Uh, it, It may be that you've never really thought about it, but if you did and if you were honest, you would say that God is scowling at you right now, wondering when you're going to get your act together, just waiting for you to screw up one more time. Line number one, God doesn't love me. Line number two, I'm on my own. And this follows from line number one. If God doesn't love me, he certainly is not with me. Uh, And even if he's with me in some vague sense, he wouldn't be for me. And so I'm on my own. I'm alone. Life is all up to me. So line number one, God doesn't love me. Line number two, I'm on my own. Line number three just follows from the first two. Line number three is that there's no way for this to end well. I'm in too deep. It's gotten too bad. Life is too hard, too sinful, too broken, uh, too evil, too messy, too far gone. There's no way for this to end well. No redemption big enough, no happy ending. And so we live in hopelessness and despair. So line number one, God doesn't love me. Line number two, I'm on my own. Line number three, there's no way for this to end well. Well, if you are not a Christian this morning, let me say right up front that the only ultimate solution to being unloved and alone and without hope is the gospel. We're going to see that this morning as we we walk through, as we see Jesus in Acts 16. But if you are a Christian, the question is, why do we still live as if the gospel is not true? Why do we still live in despair and discouragement? And at least one of the answers is because of Satan's lies. You know what Luke is doing throughout the whole book of Acts? Luke is the the, the writer of Acts. Luke is telling us what Jesus is doing. He he points us away from ourselves uh, to the work of Jesus building his church. And and it's, it's as we see Jesus doing what Jesus does that we find encouragement where there was discouragement. 
It, it's not in some uh, tip or trick, right? There, there's no four steps to a happier you. Uh, it's behold the Lamb of God seated on the throne, reigning in heaven and building his church. That's what will break us of our pride. That's what will break us of our self-reliance. That's what will break us of our despair and wake us up to what God is doing in the world. And so uh, we're going to look to Jesus, the one who is gracious and powerful and victorious, and find hope. We're going to look to Jesus this morning building his church. Jesus is building his church. And uh, if you look on the back of your bulletin, you'll see our, our outline this morning. We're going to look at the fact that Jesus is building his church impartially, that Jesus loves without prejudice, that Jesus is building his church sovereignly. Jesus is in this and in control, and Jesus is building his church victoriously, that Jesus wins. Jesus loves without prejudice. He's in this and in control, and he wins. But before we, we jump into those, I just want to go through the story again. So first, the story. Uh, in the beginning of Acts, you may remember, Jesus empowers the apostles and his church by giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he calls them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Because what we see in Acts is Jesus, by his spirit, through his people, laying the foundation of his church. Well, where we are now is uh, in Acts 16 is, is we're watching Paul on his second missionary journey, uh, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth in obedience to Jesus, right? Doing exactly what Jesus said uh, his church would do. And uh, you may remember all of this started back in Acts chapter 13 when Paul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch into the mission field. Uh, it, that journey took them to Cyprus and a place called Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, and back again. And after that period of missionary work, when they were taking the Gospels to the Gentiles in particular, some people began to insist that Gentiles be circumcised, take on the Jewish law, become Jewish in order to be saved, which led to what we call the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and at that time, the apostles and the elders got together, and they all agreed that Gentiles don't have to become Jewish in order to be saved, right? That, 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 that was a great encouragement, of course, to Gentiles, especially in Antioch, when they heard that, that Jerusalem wasn't going to push them down this road of becoming Jewish. No, they could be saved, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, right, male or female uh, alike. It was a great encouragement to the Gentiles, and it was a great win for the gospel of grace, and sometime later, uh, Paul says to Barnabas, uh, hey, Barnabas, let's go back and visit all of the churches that we planted and let's go see how they're doing. And it's interesting at this point, as far as we know, Paul had no thought of mission work uh, to new places. Uh, they just wanted to go back and vi visit the churches that they had already planted. Uh, you may remember uh, the last time we were together, I think we talked about the fact that Paul and Barnabas got a, in a little bit of an argument at this point and ended up splitting ways. Barnabas took Mark uh, with him and went to Cyprus, and Paul took Silas and took the land route through Syria. In the city of Derby, we saw Paul picks up Timothy as kind of an understudy, right, kind of a church planting intern of sorts, and the three of them, Paul and Silas and Timothy, continue through Galatia. 
And this is where our story picks up this morning. We have this interesting language in the beginning uh, of our passage uh, about the Holy Spirit forbidding them to speak in Asia. We'll come back to that. Then the Spirit of Jesus not allowing them to go to Bithynia. Finally, Paul has this dream or or a vision in the night of a Macedonian man calling to Paul in verse 9, come over to Macedonia and help us. Luke then tells us in verse 10, he says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Uh, There's this subtle or maybe not so subtle signal that Luke has actually joined the party. Uh, We're not told the circumstances around this, but suddenly uh, the group is not Paul and those with him, but we and us. And so now the writer is actually a part of this uh, band of missionaries, which tells us at the very least that Luke uh, was not only, uh, he not only got these stories from eyewitnesses who told them about what happened, but he actually was one of those eyewitnesses for at least some of the journey in Acts. And so uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke uh, head for Macedonia and they come to, to Philippi. And in Philippi, they have these three uh, interesting encounters. In some ways, we could take probably a week to look at each one of them. We're not going to do that. We're going to look at them together because I think together they tell us something as well. First, in verse 13, on the Sabbath, they go out to where they suppose there will be a place of prayer. Uh, Now, given Paul's usual practice to visit synagogues first on the Sabbath, this suggests that there was no synagogue in Philippi. And that suggests that there would have been less than 10 practicing Jewish men in that town. Because if there were 10 Jewish men, they, could have, they would constitute a synagogue. In fact, there may have been no Jewish men actually in Philippi, because when they do get to this place of prayer in verse 13, they speak to the women who had come together. And so here's this whole town, no Jewish men whatsoever in this place. When they come to this place of prayer, they speak to the women who had gathered together. Lydia, a Gentile, God-fearing woman, hears their message, believes, and is baptized. Then we have the second encounter. Apparently, they continue to go to that place of prayer for some time because on another occasion, they, they are met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. That is an evil spirit. And her slave owners capitalized on this, and apparently uh, they used her unique, albeit uh, demonic, abilities to make money through fortune-telling. And as this demon-possessed girl followed Paul, she cried out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, this actually isn't too surprising. You may remember back in the Gospels that the demons are the only ones who seem to really know who Jesus was. And here again, the the demon gets it right. His message is accurate, but perhaps a bit annoying. And so eventually, after many days of this going on, Paul gets so fed up by her shouting that he commands the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. And it does. Now, maybe Paul began to realize that publicity from demons was not the kind of publicity he wanted, 
or, or maybe her constant yelling just got on his nerves. We're not sure, but the result was the same either way. The spirit came out and with it, her owner's hope of financial gain. And so they're a little ticked off by this and immediately they seize Paul and Silas. They drag them before the rulers and they accuse them of being ethnic minorities who were disturbing the peace and encouraging people to do things that are unpatriotic. So Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown in jail. And it's there that something amazing happens, right? Paul and Silas, maybe the most amazing part is, Paul and Silas are singing, singing away, so much so that all the other prisoners can listen in, when suddenly there is an earthquake that breaks their bonds apart and sets the captives free, as it were. And the jailer in that day was responsible for his prisoners, and so seeing the jail cells open and assuming that all the prisoners have escaped, he moves to take his own life, uh, which would have been forfeit anyway uh, if the prisoners were lost. Paul stops him in verses 28 to 30, uh, where we read, Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's actually kind of an odd question. Uh, why would he ask that question at that point? Um, only, I guess, if he had heard what all the fuss was about with Paul and Silas, right? He, he knew, as uh, the demon-possessed girl had said, that they were proclaiming the way of salvation. And, of course, their answer is as succinct as it is memorable. Verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And the jailer immediately, that very hour, washes their wounds and they wash him in the waters of baptism, he and his family. The next day, the magistrates are ready to let Paul and Silas go. Paul makes a stink about it. They had neglected his rights as a Roman citizen, and he called them on it. You see, it wasn't lawful to beat a Roman citizen as they had done, especially without a trial. And as a result, they came probably a little bit nervous that the news of their injustice might get out, and they apologized, and they asked them to leave the city, probably leave quietly. <laughs> What are we to make of Paul's adventures here in Acts chapter 16? Well, let me again emphasize that the book of Acts is about Jesus building his church. Paul is not the hero of the book of Acts. Jesus is. And Jesus is at work by his spirit building his church, laying the foundation. And what we see here is Jesus building his church impartially, sovereignly, and victoriously. So first, uh, Jesus is building his church impartially. Uh, it, it's easy to fall into believing a lie, that, the lie that God doesn't love you. Uh, maybe you think God only loves a certain group of people and you don't fit that mold, whatever that is. Uh, maybe you think you've somehow outsinned grace. Maybe you think that you have failed as a Christian and God is just fed up with you. One of the things that we see in this chapter is the impartial love of Jesus, that Jesus loves without prejudice. Notice the people who come into contact with the grace of Jesus in this chapter. Uh, first, you have Lydia, right? a, a businesswoman, a seller of purple goods, a worshiper of God. She's obviously not a, a Jewish woman, or Luke would have said that, uh, but she's a Gentile who worships the true God. 
Lydia is an entrepreneur of sorts, right? She's from Thyatira, but she has set up shop in Philippi. Uh, it, she's pretty clearly single uh, because later we're told that her household was baptized. And that means Lydia, this single entrepreneurial businesswoman, is the, the head of that household. She hears the gospel. Uh, her heart, having been prepared by the Holy Spirit, she believes. Now, uh, maybe, maybe you are a kind of Lydia. Uh, maybe you are successful, making a living uh, out on your own. What we see is that Jesus' love extends to such as these. Then you have the opposite extreme. You have the demon-possessed slave girl. She has owners, physically and spiritually. Her outward condition is really just an echo of her spiritual. She is enslaved. Maybe you feel like this, addicted to substances or addicted to praise. Uh, you feel codependent or, or needy. Uh, maybe you feel used and abused, unloved and alone, pushed and pulled apart from your own will. Your life just seems to, to move along without anybody asking permission. Things just happen to you. Well, Jesus' love and care extends to such as these as well. Finally, you have the Philippian jailer. Different from both of them, uh, it's possible that he was a retired soldier. That was often the case for jailers. A retired soldier making a living in his golden years, as it were. He's kind of a, a company man, right? Blue collar, hardworking, loyal to his country. Until suddenly he ends up on the wrong side of the law. At least he thinks his life is forfeit. Uh, there's a moment where all hope is lost. His, his life flashes before his eyes. He's ready to, to kill himself. And yet he asks the right question in that moment. What must I do to be saved? Well, maybe this is you, right? Just, just a, a working man trying to make a living, living one small step away from all hope being lost. And Jesus' love and care extends to such as these as well. And here's the point, right? As we look at all of the, the variety of people that come in contact with the gospel in the book of Acts, whether you are a successful religious person or, or, or are lower class and religiously suspect, like the demon-possessed girl, or whether you are a government employee who doesn't even have opinions on such things, uh, Jesus' grace is big enough. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. The answer is always believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household. Jesus will reject none who come to him, right? You can't out-sin grace. You cannot place yourself outside of his reach. Jesus' love is, is impartial, as, as Scripture says elsewhere, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. We can add religious or unreligious, black or white, upper class or lower class, white collar, blue collar. It doesn't matter. Maybe you think, right, you're actually pretty good, uh, better than most, morally upright, maybe even religiously correct, you, you, you doctrinally, right, you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's. Maybe you think you're, you're so good, you, you don't even need the grace of Jesus. Or maybe you think you're pretty bad, right, worse than most, morally suspect, religiously backward. Right? Well, well, don't believe the lie either that God has to love you because you're so good or the lie that God will never love you because you're so bad. Jesus' love is without prejudice. All who call on him and only those who call on him on the name of Jesus will be saved. And so if you're full of pride 
or full of guilt, here's what we need to know, right? Jesus' love is without respect to whatever it is that you are either boasting in or despairing in. He doesn't love you because of your status in this world, and he won't reject you because of your status in this world. We are all welcomed through the cross. So Jesus is building his church, impartially inviting sinners to himself. Second, Jesus is building his church sovereignly. Jesus is in this and in control. Uh, we, we see this from the start of our passage, right? That those words, uh, the Holy Spirit forbids Paul and Silas to speak the gospel in Asia. I think that is one of the most striking sentences in the book of Acts. Can you imagine? God forbids you to speak the gospel to someone. That seems a little odd to me. And then it, it goes one further, right? The Spirit, uh, uh, they, they moved to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Right? Don't go there. Now, we don't know how this forbidding took place, this not allowing. What did it look like? Was it a direct sort of word from the Spirit? Was it a dream? Was it a prophecy? Was it circumstantial or providential? We don't know. Uh, what we do know is Jesus had a plan, and he was directing their mission. And that sense of purpose, that sense of direction, is, is strengthened by Paul's first encounter. Lydia is from Thyatira. Thyatira was a city in Asia, the very place the Holy Spirit had just forbidden them to speak the gospel. Now, where more precisely was Thyatira? Thyatira was on the border of two regions, the region of Mysia, the place the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go, and the region of Lydia. Right? So the Holy Spirit said, don't go into Lydia. Go to Philippi and meet a woman named Lydia. So Paul is forbidden to speak in Asia, forbidden to go to Mysia, forbidden to do mission work in Lydia. Who is the first person he meets in Philippi? A woman from the border of Lydia and Mysia in Asia named Lydia. Now, I can attribute this to nothing but the playfulness of the Spirit. I mean, what else can it be? Don't go here, don't go to this region, don't go to you know, Lydia, Mysia, Asia. Go, go to Philippi and meet a woman from this region named Lydia. God has Paul reach Lydia, just not the Lydia he expected. He, he reaches the people of Asia and Mysia, just not in the place he expected. Uh, and, and I think the point is God is going to reach his people, just not maybe the way we expect or plan. And this maybe shouldn't surprise us as we sit on the campus of the University of Illinois, right? Jesus said, go to the nations. And yet we don't have to leave Champaign-Urbana and the nations are coming to us, right? 10,000 international students on the, the campus of the University of Illinois from multiple nations around the world. And they're right here. We don't have to go anywhere. Oh, you can, right? But, but you don't have to, to reach the nations. God is going to accomplish his work, even at times, by frustrating ours. We, we see Jesus' sovereignty in other ways in the life of Lydia. Verse 14 says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so how is it that Lydia came to faith? Jesus opened her heart to believe. 
you know, given the missionary emphasis of the book of Acts, uh, we might think that Luke would emphasize human freedom over God's sovereignty, as is so often done uh, when people think about evangelism and missions, uh, but that's just not the case. Uh, in fact, Luke stresses God's sovereignty in saving his people throughout. Uh, think back to, to Acts chapter 13, where uh, we're told, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How does one come to faith in Christ? Well, first, God appoints them to eternal life. And second, he opens their heart to the message of the gospel, as he did with Lydia. And then, as they hear it, they believe. Jesus is at work, right? Building his church sovereignly, bringing people to himself. That should be a great encouragement to us. It's actually not a discouragement to sharing the gospel. It's an encouragement to sharing the gospel because we know that it will be fruitful as God would have it be fruitful, right? In God's plan and God's timing, he will do his work. We share the gospel. We let him take care of the rest. And of course, though, there are a variety of ways that, that Jesus works here, right? God doesn't save everybody in a cookie-cutter fashion. With Lydia, it's this simple proclamation of the gospel coupled with the preparation of the Holy Spirit. That's it. They, they meet her at a place of prayer. They share the gospel she believes. And then there's the demon-possessed slave girl. It's, it's a little bit different. We don't really know her whole story, but at the very least, there's this crisis of spiritual intervention, right? There's this confrontation confrontation involved, spiritual warfare. When Paul instructs, uh, however, when Paul instructs us in spiritual warfare later on in the epistles, uh, it, it looks pretty different than it does here. Um, there's something unique in Jesus and the apostles' direct confrontation with demonic forces that we never see discussed in the epistles. We could talk about that more if you're interested, if you have questions about that later. But uh, there, there's kind of a change of the mode of operation when we get to Ephesians chapter 6 or 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, but nevertheless, despite that strategy shift, spiritual warfare continues. Right? There is a real battle between the spiritual forces in the heavenly places and us as we seek to live by faith. But then you have the Philippian jailer. So you have, this, you have this simple proclamation with Lydia. You have this spiritual confrontation with uh, the slave girl. And then you have the Philippian jailer. It's not this simple conversation as with Lydia. It's not this spiritual battle either. But for him, it's this crisis of the collapse of his world. Uh, his life flashes before his eyes. He thinks this is the end. Uh, my, 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 I've lost all my prisoners. My life is forfeit. Suddenly he realizes that his old system of refuge isn't going to work for him anymore. Life is not going to keep working for him the way it always has. And so he cries out to be saved. And, and the point is this, right? Jesus is, is sovereign. He will save whom he desires to save, uh, maybe in ways that are completely unexpected to us. Jesus is sovereign. He, he must save if anyone is to be saved at all, right? He must open our hearts. And Jesus is sovereign, and that also means that, that we can't put the way he works in a box, right? For some, it may be quiet. For some others, it may be dramatic. For some, it may be intellectual. For others, it may be a spiritual battle. For some, uh, it will be less disruptive of normal life. With Lydia, right? she, she was already a God-fearer. This was the next logical step. But for others, it's going to be a complete overthrow of the old way of doing things. Lydia's life was never the same again, I'm sure of it. And so as the church, as we uh, seek for the gospel to go forward, right, we need to know uh, this, uh, that you're not on your own in this, 
right? Jesus is in control. The work of salvation, yours or somebody else's, it's not all up to you. Uh, if, if you are restless and ceaseless and tired or simply feeling guilty because you're not doing more, the first thing that you need to know is that Jesus is in this and in control. Right? He's the one. His hands are on the reins. He's the one at the steering wheel. And so you can rest. Right? The weight of the world is not actually on your shoulders. Jesus has this. Right? If he needs help, he'll ask you, I'm sure. But for now, right, just let him be Jesus. And this is true of his work in and through the church. This is true of his work in your life and in the lives of your friends and family and neighbors. And so the most important thing for you to do really is, is ask him to do his work. Right? Not, only, not only let Jesus be Jesus, but, but seek for him to do what only he can do. And so if you're restless or ceaseless or tired, know that Jesus is in this. Whatever's going on in your life, Jesus is in this. He's in control. Trust him. Relax, right? Jesus is going to build his church. Jesus is going to accomplish his work in you and through you. Serve him while resting in his sovereignty, right? Serve him while resting in his sovereignty, right? We're not called to passivity nor to self-reliance but to, to dependent activity. We serve him while resting in the sovereignty of Jesus. And we can take Jesus' sovereignty a step further, though, can't we? we what, what are the implications of that? Uh, point three, Jesus is building his church victoriously. Jesus wins. Uh, do you ever feel like you have lots of good ideas, lots of effort, lots of good intentions, but your plans always seem to fail? Uh, you, you keep getting interrupted or everyone seems to oppose you. All you want to do is serve Jesus, but it just seems so hopeless. There's a battle without, and if you're honest, there's a struggle within. And this daily conflict has been beating you down. You begin to feel despair setting in. And you want to just give up. And you begin to think, this can't end well. There's no way for this to end well. You can't imagine a scenario where this all works out. Well, let me tell you, right, actually, this can end well. And this will end well if you are a follower of Jesus. Because in the end, Jesus will win. He will overturn all of the evil in your life for good. He will overrule it. Uh, notice Paul's struggles, right? Paul, he just wants to go out and be a missionary, right? He wants to tell people about Jesus. And immediately, his plans fall apart before he even leaves Galatia, the Spirit begins to forbid him to speak and go everywhere on his checklist. And when he finally does figure out where God is sending him, he gets interrupted by a demon. And as soon as that problem is dealt with, he gets arrested and thrown into jail. That's a bad day. But Jesus keeps working, right? He, he brings victory out of apparent failure. He, the failed plans lead to converts in Philippi. The demonic interruption leads to setting the captives free. Uh, beating and arrest leads to another household being baptized into the faith. Jesus is at work building his church, not just despite our troubles, but even through them. And if we don't believe that, we aren't remembering the cross. God's love, God's presence, God's victory is most clearly displayed in the work of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his son and if you feel unloved by God or unlovable, look to the cross. 
God's love is clearly displayed by giving his son as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus said there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for their friends. And at the cross, Jesus did just that. God's presence is displayed in Jesus as well. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's true in the incarnation when Jesus came in the flesh. But it continues to be true after the ascension when Jesus poured out his spirit, fulfilling his promise to be with us always. And of course, God's victory is displayed in Jesus as well. Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. Many people thought at that point, there's no way for this to end well. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was buried. This whole following Jesus thing is over, they assumed. But it did end well. Jesus rose from the dead, victorious over the grave. And what that shows is no matter how bad it gets, God can still win. There's no point at which you have to say, well, there's no way God can get me out of this. And that God who triumphed over death through the cross and the resurrection, that is the God who is with us and for us in Jesus. Yes, your, your plans can fail like Paul's did. You, you can get interrupted and opposed and jailed and even put to death. But God can and will bring good out of evil. And what is genuinely evil and, and genuinely bad, worth mourning over, worth weeping over, worth sadness and tears. Right? We're not denying that it's evil. But that's the same stuff that God is going to overturn for good. That's why Paul and Silas are singing, right? You, you remember that detail, right? They're, they have just, they, they, they've been off course, they've been interrupted, they've been arrested and thrown in, beaten and thrown into jail. And what are they doing in the jail cell? They're singing. How can they sing? I mean, I stub my toe and I begin to grumble. How can they sing? Because they know Jesus loves them, is in this, is in control, and that he will win. They don't know how. Right? We, we have no indication that they know what's about to happen. As far as they know, the next day they could be put to death. We don't know. They didn't know. And yet they sung nevertheless because they do know the resurrected one. They know the one who has conquered death. And their joy is in him, his past victory over death and the resurrection and the assurance that he will work all things for their good and his glory. And so if you are on the one hand full of a, a pride or a guilt, feeling unloved and unlovable, know that Jesus loves without prejudice. Your status in this life for good or ill cannot affect Jesus' love one bit. His love is for sinners who come to him, who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. And if you are restless and ceaseless and tired, know that Jesus is in this. He's in control. The fate of the world is not in your hands. In fact, your, your fate, right? not only the fate of the world, your own fate is not ultimately in your hands. Jesus said at one point in, in the Gospel of John that we were safely in the hands of our Father and that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. And if you are feel, fearful and despairing and hopeless, know that Jesus wins. 
whatever you're going through, he can work it out for good. You may not see it. You may not believe it. It may seem impossible. It may seem blasphemous for me to say that Jesus can work the horrors in your life out for good, but he can. He's just that big. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us, that you are sovereign, and that you will work whatever we're going throughout for our good and for your glory. We thank you and praise you that you are just that big. Help us to know that, to remember that, to believe that, to trust in that every day, and to, to call on you to, to both to remind us of who you are and to be who you are in our lives. We pray for your spirit to, to work in us to fight against the lies of the evil one and to believe the truths of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.